KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Videos released following a fatal police shooting here of a mentally distressed man. Alfredo! Alfredo, San Diego police, come I got, outside! I got it, I got it. Alfredo! I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new poll shows it may not be a tight race in the 50th Congressional District. If both these candidates are spending big money on ads down the stretch, then there must be some internal polling that shows, hey, look, this race is actually a lot closer than we think. We look at other races and issues facing voters in San Diego's East County, plus why traditional support for Republicans among the military may be eroding because of Donald Trump. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. It was a mental distress call. San Diego police arrived at a house in the Mountain View neighborhood. A man, 39-year-old Jose Alfredo Castro Gutierrez, rushed out the front door and ran at officers. In a flash, he was fatally shot. Now video footage from several police body cameras has been released. Joining me to discuss this latest police shooting is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. Max, welcome to the program. Good to be here. We'll start with uh, who this shooting victim was and why police were called to the home in the first place. 39-year-old Jose Alfredo Castro Gutierrez was a legal permanent resident from Mexico. He was a Mexican citizen. He was working uh, in construction, and he was living in a a home with rented rooms. Uh, Late one night, and actually early in the morning of October 19th, uh, people started hearing him in a heightened emotional state. He was screaming. He was asking for help. He was paranoid. um, And so both a uh, neighbor outside of the house and somebody in the house called 911 and told the dispatcher that, you know, this guy was in a lot of trouble and they were worried about him. And in fact, the person who was outside the house said that it sounded like somebody was being tortured. Uh, The dispatcher asked them, would you want ambulance to be sent, fire department to be sent, or the police to be sent? And basically the person answered the police and that's who came. Well, let's hear the audio portion of police officers from the video calling out to the victim shortly after they arrived at the scene. Alfredo! Alfredo! San Diego police, come I got, outside! I got, I got it. Alfredo! Suelta el, su, suelta el palo, Alfredo! Suelta. 41 King, we're making contact. contact. Drop it! Hey, drop it! Uh, 
And Max, explain what happened. Several different weapons were used, right? Right. So you could hear that he's coming out in the video. He's coming out from the house. Um, it's unclear. He's holding what police later say was a curtain rod. And in a very short chain of events, actually, it all happened at exactly the same time. You had three separate police officers using three separate deterrents. Uh, you have one officer who uses kind of a shotgun-like device to shoot a beanbag into Mr. Castro. You have another police officer who uses a taser. And then right next to the officer that uses the taser, you have Officer uh, Castillo, who fires his weapon, killing Mr. Castro. So three different things were used for the exact same inciting incident, which was this man running out of a house screaming, help me. And explain uh, the various police officer body cams, what they show and what a security camera on the house shows. And I should say, obviously, we're on radio, but this video is post, uh, posted with your story on kpbs.org. But what do they show? Yeah, it shows that this is all in a really quick succession. Basically, within 10 seconds of them deciding to approach the house, you have officers explaining in English and Spanish saying, hey, calm down, drop it. And as he's running out, clearly um, in, in mental distress and yelling, help me, they shoot him. Now, it's been more than a week since the shooting. How did this uh, particular video or series of videos, I should say, wind up getting released? So the San Diego Police Department has made an effort in recent months to make sure that body camera footage is released uh, within a timely manner uh, following fatal shootings. Of course, this is expedited when there are shootings that the police department believes um, were, were appear to be quote-unquote justified, where you have an individual who is either pointing a weapon at a police officer or clearly putting a police officer in danger and, and inciting that, that use of lethal force. This took around 10 days to be released. And that was only after legal representation was found by Mr. Castro's family. And then several requests were made by media and their their counsel to see the video and have that body camera footage released. So it got released because of the, the public pressure, because we do know that San Diego Police Department has it completely within their ability to release these types of videos, which are edited within a few hours. And the family of this man who died say he was in mental distress. He's one of three people just this week killed by police while in what's being described as mental health crises. Right. You have protests going on right now after the killing of Walter Wallace Jr. in Philadelphia. Uh, this is part of a national trend. Um, according to a study from the um, Treatment Advocacy Center, people with mental illnesses are 16 times more likely than the overall population to be killed by police. Again, that 911 call from the neighbor where they're being given a choice by the dispatcher who to send, um, police, ambulance, or, or the fire department. Um, this is basically a, a question that's being asked around the country is who should respond to people in mental health? health crises. Uh, should it be the police or should it be, you know, ambulances or, or people who have training in de-escalation and working with people with mental health issues? Because we know that police um, just don't have that training. Uh, they have to deal with people with mental health issues all the time, but that's just not a priority in terms of what they're being told to do. And that debate is happening here in San Diego as, as well. We do have the PERT teams here, but we've got a ballot issue, of course, on uh, on police commission and more oversight of the police, which will be coming up next week, and I'm sure this debate will continue. Now, Eugene Iredale, that's the family's attorney, he concludes this was an unnecessary shooting. 
What do police and the district attorney's office say at this point? Right now, they're not saying much. They just said they're going to be looking into it um, and that the FBI will also be involved. The district attorney will decide whether to charge people. I mean, something you mentioned is is the PERT teams for dealing with people in mental health um, distress. OK, so I think a big question would be what was their role in this incident and what, what were they dealing with um, and why weren't they called to the scene? And if they were on the scene, why weren't they the first kind of point of contact here? Another thing that the DA will be looking into is that, you know, the DA did charge for the first time in recent memory, uh, a San Diego law enforcement officer for shooting somebody while in the line of duty. And that was this was done over the summer when the DA charged a sheriff's deputy who was running away um, from from the, the jail and shot them in the back. Uh, so that was, you know, a particularly egregious example. But it did show a willingness by the district attorney for the first time in a very, very long time to actually charge an on-duty police officer with murder for um, shooting somebody. Now, the victim, Jose Alfredo Castro Gutierrez, was a legal resident of the U.S., also a Mexican citizen. You've spoken to the Mexican consular general about this. What did he have to say? Well, he's very concerned because, in fact, this was the second shooting of a Mexican citizen in mental distress in, in the course of, a, of a, just over a week at the uh, San Ysidro Port of Entry last Friday, a man was shot by Border Patrol agents who was also, uh, in his description, in mental distress. So one thing that Mexico is really interested in is, you know, they're, they're not one to say that their own policing doesn't have certain issues, but they do view the treatment of people with mental health issues with lethal force as, as extremely troubling. And they are worried that these investigations will not get a fair shake because these people were not United States citizens. So they say they're going to be very much on uh, on alert to make sure that this is being done fairly and you know without prejudice against the individuals just because they're not U.S. citizens. And we will be looking for follow-up reporting on this fatal shooting. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Riblin-Nadler. Thanks, Max. Thank you. The 50th congressional district race between Democrat Amar Kampanajar and Republican Darrell Issa had been called neck and neck, a toss-up, and anyone's guess. But new polling has raised questions about how tight a race this is. A poll out this week from the San Diego Union-Tribune and 10 News finds Issa opening up a double-digit lead over Kampanajar. Joining me is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Tell us more about this UT 10 News poll. Right. Sort of a a huge change in the district after we saw a lot of these polls that were showing them neck and neck, basically tied. Um, This Survey USA poll, 530 likely voters in the 50th congressional district. Some of those have already voted. But what what the survey found was that 51 percent of people were supporting ISA and just 40 percent were supporting Camp and Ajar with 9 percent undecided. Now, that's a big jump from some other polls where we saw like 46, 47, 42, 42. Um, So this one really opening it up, showing that um, and especially among independents, they found, you know, Camp Ajar just six weeks ago, uh, he had a 13-point September lead um, when, it, when it comes to independence. Uh, that, in this poll, turned into a 14-point deficit. So that's a 27-point swing to ISA. Uh, basically, this poll shows that independents are, are flocking to ISA. Well, is there any speculation about why Camp Ajar may have lost ground in this race? 
You know, he did a, a sort of controversial interview with a group called Defend East County that were formed after um, some protests and some looting, rioting um, over there in La Mesa. Um, and he took some criticism from that for Democrats. A lot of people were not unhappy. Uh, the county chair, we heard him say that, you know, some of Omar's views are definitely not in line with our party. Um, but, you know, two political scientists that I talked to, um, one from UC San Diego, one from San Diego State, they don't really seem to think that this has, um, that there's been any sort of one event that's had an impact on this race. Um, they just sort of say, look, ISA is a well-established candidate. You know, he served, you know, mainly in the 49th, almost 18 years, um, and, and that he's a conservative. You know what you're going to get when you get ISA. And they think that, look, Hunter was a damaged candidate when he ran, especially under indictment. And uh, they, they don't think that this poll is necessarily surprising. You know, maybe the lead isn't 11 points. Maybe it's more like five to eight, but not surprising. And that's Duncan Hunter Jr., who represented this particular district for many, many years. Now, could the fact that so many people have decided to vote before Election Day, could that affect the outcome of this race? Yeah, because this is a presidential race with President Trump leading the ballot for Republicans, political science experts are expecting a lot of Republicans to flock out on Election Day. And they're expecting a lot of these mail-in ballots that are coming in California uh, to go sort of Democratic. So uh, some of the political scientists are predicting on election night, sort of like the first returns, you may see Amar with the lead, and then maybe start to see that dwindle down. Um, but basically, you know, I talked to uh, Benjamin Gonzalez O'Brien. He's a, a political science professor with San Diego State. And he says, look, if you're a Democrat for Amar, you're hoping that some of those Republicans just don't turn out. What you're hoping for is maybe that some Republicans and some of those independents who were breaking towards ISA, maybe they don't, don't turn out on election day. Uh, maybe they change their mind at the last minute. What else do the political experts you spoke to say about the race now? Well, Maureen, they basically say that the fact that there's a lot of money being thrown around in this race, we're seeing you know, about $17, $18 million already spent inside the 50th district. Now, if you look at that sort of in proportion to the rest of the House races, that is about, you know, it's, it's about number nine. According to Open Secrets, it's the ninth highest uh, House race that's being spent on. And if you're wondering, wondering like which ones are ahead of that, it's like AOC's race, um, Nancy Pelosi, um, all, all the big races, Kevin McCarthy that you think about. And then all of a sudden, there it is, the 50th congressional race. Now, a lot of that is because Daryl Issa is self-funding his campaign. You know, he's raised about $12 million, $12.5 million. Um, but of that, $8 million has either been loaned or donated by ISA himself directly. And that goes to about $5.5 million that Amar Campanajar has been able to raise. Now, where are they spending that money down the stretch? A lot of TV ads, and both of them are going negative. You know, we see Campanajar trying to bring up uh, ISIS past. We see ISA trying to bring up Campanajar's past. And so the political scientists think that if both these candidates are spending big money on ads down the stretch, then there must be some internal polling that shows, hey, look, this race is actually a lot closer than we think. What's been the reaction of the two campaigns to this news that ISA has opened up a lead? Well, no, no surprise coming from the ISA camp. You know, we heard the former congressman saying, look, this is no surprise to me. You know, I've been running a campaign based on, you know, I'm a, a set conservative. They know what they're going to get. And people are, are finally responding to that. Um, he, he notes that he had a tough challenge in the primary with some Republicans. But now the Republicans seem to be sort of coalescing behind ISA and he's ready to represent them in Congress. Now, Camp Anajar, a much different tone, obviously, being down 11 points in this poll. Um, he's basically saying, you know, the only poll that matters is Election Day. Um, and he also points to another poll that was done earlier this month. It was by Strategies 360, um, and it showed that ISA and Campanajar were neck and neck, 42% and 42%. But that poll was done uh, for the Campanajar campaign, and it had a 5% margin of error. So then, Matt, less than a week from the end of the election, what's the takeaway on this race? 
So Maureen, part of that Survey USA poll, 88% of Republicans plan to or already have voted for ISA. And it also showed that 92% of Democrats, same thing, plan to or already have voted for Camp Najjar. So that shows you right there that, you know, Democrats and Republicans are sort of voting along party lines here. Now that's bad for Camp Najjar. He needs some of those conservatives, needs some of those independents. And that sort of undecided, that 9% undecided here, that big chunk of independents, they could be the ones that make the difference in this race. I mean, we know that ICE is a known commodity. Uh, we know Camp Najjar you know, is, is obviously a Democrat, but those independents and some of those Republicans that are wondering where they're going to vote and turnout could have a big deal to do with that. You know, If these Republicans don't turn out on election day, we could see Camp Najjar get a win here. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. The biggest and most consequential election choices in San Diego's East County this year are undoubtedly the 50th District Congressional Race and the choice of county supervisor in District 2. Now, we've covered both of those races frequently at KPBS, and you can find our coverage of them in the Voter's Guide section of our website, kpbs.org. But the two big races are not the only election stories coming out of the cities of El Cajon, Lemon Grove, Santee, and La Mesa. There are mayoral races, lots of city council seats up for grabs, and propositions over development, term limits, and school bonds. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune East County reporter Karen Perlman. And Karen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Now, before we get into the candidate races, let's talk about the issues on the ballot. Santee residents are voting on a proposition similar to a countywide one that was rejected by voters in March. What would Proposition N do if passed? If passed, it'll allow the voters in Santee to decide on plans that are going to change from the general plan. So it's basically about development. Who gets to give the green light to it? Exactly. Instead of the city council, the uh, the voters will have the say. Now, Santee residents are also deciding between two measures that would set term limits for elected officials. What are the differences between those two measures? Measure Q was started by the citizens, and it allows the mayor or city council to only have three consecutive four-year terms. Uh, And Measure R, which the city put out in response to the other one, uh, establishes a limit of three consecutive four-year terms for city council, but does not include the mayor. The mayor is separate and would have a limit of two consecutive four-year terms. So it's not included with the citizens' Measure Q, but it would be separate for the mayor with Measure R. And I'm assuming there are no term limits now on these. There on, are no on term the, limits now. Okay. So Councilman Stephen Houlihan has given up his council seat to challenge Santee Mayor John Minto. Can you tell us about that race? 
Yes, so Stephen Houlihan has been on the city council since 2016. And he has been kind of the dissenting voice on the city council for a long time on things like development. He is more for smart development and less governmental uh, ruling about those kinds of things. Minto has been on the uh, city council since, gosh, I want to say 2012, maybe. Uh, He's been mayor for uh, one term and he's going for his second term. Any feeling about who's got the advantage in this race? It's hard to say because of uh, Proposition N, which is the one about development. Stephen Houlihan was one of the people who wrote that measure up, along with a guy named Van Collinsworth, who runs a uh, Preserve Wild Santee, which is a political action group, but it's environmentally based. So Houlihan has been kind of the uh, anti-development. I shouldn't say anti-development because he's not against it. He just wants it to be in line with the general plan. And there's a lot of people who are uh, of that mindset right now. They're unhappy about Finita Ranch, which is the 3,000 home development that the city council passed a couple months ago. And he has been very outspoken about that project, not wanting it to have gone through the way that it did. So Minto, you know, he has a lot more years on the city council and he's got a lot more experience. He's a retired police officer with San Diego City. And uh, just different kinds of experience for the two of them and different viewpoints on things, I would say. And it's really hard to tell right now because they both seem to have a lot of backers. Okay, then let's move on to the city of Lemon Grove. Uh, They're deciding, that city is deciding on a mayor and a couple of city council members. Is the city's economy the big issue in this race? Yes, it is. I wrote a story uh, last year about possibly them disincorporating because of the financial issues that have been really getting worse for them. They only have 25,000 people in that city and they don't have a real big business boom. So there's not a lot of taxes that they get from people. So their finances have been troubled for a while. They tried to pass a sales tax earlier this year in March and it didn't pass. But they put a measure on the ballot this year for putting tax on medical marijuana. Now, as far as I know, there's only one dispensary in the city, but they allowed it since 2016. And this way, if it passes, they'll be able to get some sales tax money from the medical marijuana. And that would be Measure J on the Lemon Grove ballot. And how much money would that be expected to generate if it passes? It's expected to generate between $560,000 and $1.1 million uh, and would go for municipal expenses, fire safety, roads, recreation. In the city of La Mesa, is the fallout from the civil unrest last summer playing any role in the races for city council? I would say yes. There's been some chatter about different new candidates that are saying that they want more police accountability. But the people that are uh, running for city council, the two incumbents, Christina Alicio and Colin Perrin, have also expressed the same feelings. They want more done for the police department to be more transparent. They've had quite a few meetings uh, about the new police chief. The old police chief uh, retired on August 13th, and they've been trying to find a replacement for him. And I would say that it's a very big topic, the social justice um, and what happened in May in that city when a lot of the businesses were looted and there were there were two banks in a building that were set on fire and there was just a lot of unrest. So I would say that that's a really big deal in that city as far as you know how they're responding to the police and the relationship between the police and the city, the police and the residents. 
Now, in East County's largest city, El Cajon, there are two competitive council races. What are the big issues in those races? El Cajon has a homeless issue that they've been trying to deal with for a long time. I think that uh, they've done actually more than other cities have done. They've got a couple of places where uh, the homeless people get taken care of. There's Home Start that's worked with them. There's Crisis House. They have the El Cajon, uh, excuse me, East County Transitional Living Center. I would say that that's part of what their concerns are. And also opening back up again, there's been some talk about the businesses. There's a lot of businesses in El Cajon, a lot of mom and poppers that have struggled because of COVID-19 closures. So they've been talking about how to uh, reopen the city safely so that their businesses can thrive again. And finally, is there any indication of what turnout has been like so far? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I hope that it's in line with the rest of the county. I think people are pretty involved and engaged, but I'm very tuned into the issues and uh, more of the candidates and what they're saying about things as they go along this versus the people, if they voted already or not. So I really don't know what that's going to be like. And I'm, I'm interested in seeing that, actually. I have been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune East County reporter Karen Perlman. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you. Upon turning 18, you're allowed to do a lot of things you couldn't do before, like voting. But should California allow people to vote before turning 18? That's what Proposition 18 is about. California Report host Saul Gonzalez talks about the pros and cons of the issue with KQED politics reporter Guy Marzorati. Guy, what's Prop 18 all about? So Prop 18 would allow 17-year-olds to vote in California primary and special elections if they turn 18 by the general election. So this is not aimed at all 17-year-olds, but the slice of 17-year-olds who turn 18 between the primary and the November election. And when they vote in the primary, that, of course, I, I would guess would be both for candidates who are running and for propositions on the ballot. That's right. And proponents of this say, one, it's only fair. These uh, teens are voting or allowed to vote in the November election in the general election. So they argue it's only fair to give them a chance to pick who makes it into the November election by allowing them to vote in the primary. There's also an argument that, you know, voting is a habit. And the earlier you build up that habit, the more likely that these voters could become lifetime voters. And so the thought is, if you introduce voting in primary elections, potentially while these 17-year-olds are in high school, already getting a civics education, they could potentially increase uh, their habit of voting and become lifelong voters. Hmm. So in a, in a sense, by getting uh, a young person even earlier into the electoral process, the voting process, you create kind of a, a lifetime of conscientious voting. Exactly. And, you know, this is, you know, there has been some opposition, uh, but opponents have said, look, 18 is kind of the designated age we've decided on for legal responsibility. Um, so why create this special carve out for voting? They also say that, you know, even though many other states have adopted this, that California is different because we vote directly on ballot measures. And if this does pass and if 17 year olds are allowed to vote in California, how might this change the playing field of California politics? Uh, the Public Policy Institute of California has done some research on this, and they found basically this would have amounted to 200,000 people in the 2016 uh, and also the 2018 elections, which, look, in a primary election, which can often be decided by a small vote count, it's already a smaller uh, universe of voters, maybe these young uh, voters could swing elections one way or another. 
That being said, you know, young voters already have a lower propensity to register and turn out. If you look at the voters who became eligible by turning 18, only half of them registered uh, and then less than half of that actually showed up to vote in 2016 and, and 2018. So it's, it's not as if this is a silver bullet for getting people to the polls. And even people who support Prop 18 say you really would want to pair it with a stronger civic education. Maybe that'll be the ticket. If people are in school, they have a better uh, civic education, and they can actually apply their vote uh, in a real way instead of in a mock election. That was California Report host Saul Gonzalez speaking with KQED politics reporter Guy Marzorati. Veterans traditionally are more likely to vote for Republican candidates, but polls suggest their support for President Trump has eroded. Jay Price reports for the American Homefront Project. In a poll released this week, 52% of veterans said they would vote for President Trump, while 42% backed former Vice President Joe Biden. Others favored a third-party candidate or planned not to vote. The poll was by Military Times and the Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University, where Rosalinda Mari is Director of Applied Research and Analytics. I've never seen it this close in previous years. In 2016, 60% of veterans who voted picked Trump, according to exit polling. In the new poll, older vets still had a clear preference for him, while younger veterans, female and minority veterans, and former officers favored Biden. So when you start looking at these subpopulations, um, you do see some difference. 59% of those over the age of 54 said they were backing the president. This includes people like Gary Aiken, a 71-year-old Vietnam veteran from the North Carolina mountain community of Swannanoa, who owns a small sign and graphic design company. The veterans that I know and I interact with are basically saying that they're going to vote for Trump. Aiken said he can't imagine not voting for Trump, in part because he feels the VA health care system has improved. Also, the economy, and I think for me personally, it has to do with the America that I knew growing up versus, you know, the American that Biden and some of his cronies envision, which is certainly not what I would want for my grandkids. But Trump's volatile behavior and his series of controversial comments about veterans and service members haven't played well with many younger veterans, including former Navy SEAL Dan Barkoff, now an emergency room doctor in Vermont. I have many issues with Trump, but the thing that started it all was just the dishonesty. Barkoff, who described himself as a conservative, compared Trump to another president. I was in the Naval Academy when Clinton was the commander-in-chief and monitor Lewinsky and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't like that either. You know, the, the murmuring in the ranks, so to speak, was that, you know, Clinton's this dishonest liar. And there were all these arguments made by, by people who were still in politics, frankly, that, you know, you can't have a commander in chief who's dishonest with the troops he's supposed to lead. Barkov founded a group called Veterans for Responsible Leadership to, in some sense, persuade other veterans that it was OK not to vote for Trump. And he agreed to record some bare knuckle ads for the Lincoln Project, the Republican anti-Trump group group that specializes in ads like this goading the president. I'm a pro-life, gun-owning combat veteran, and I can see Trump for what he is, a coward. We need to send this draft dodger back to his golf courses. The lives of our troops depend on it. 
The new poll follows an apparent trend. A poll this summer by the same groups found a slight edge for Biden among active duty troops, and another recent poll of veterans by Morning Consult yielded a similar result. The contentious campaign has also spurred nonpartisan activism among veterans. Afghanistan veteran and digital media CEO Greg Berman has joined forces with 10 other high-profile veterans to promote voting. He says they were disturbed by widespread voter suppression efforts and felt it was an extension of their military service to fight that. None of us took any pleasure in having to do this. It's the last thing we want it to do. We want it to feel like every leader was doing its part during a high stakes time for our country to stand by what it means to have a free, fair and safe election. But feeling like that was under threat and feeling like the lights were blinking red, it felt really important just to say, hey, you know, we have a stake in this and we have a perspective that we think is worth sharing. Some in his group are liberal, others are conservative. But he says the point isn't who to vote for, it's that everyone should be allowed to vote. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I'm Jay Price. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For many Western communities, their water supplies originate from melting snow high up in the mountains. But this summer's record-breaking wildfires have reduced some headwater forests to heaps of ash. Luke Runyon from KUNC reports, wildfires can cause big problems for municipal drinking water systems. Until eight years ago, the city of Fort Collins, Colorado's main water source, the Poudre River, was nearly pristine. It tumbled out of the Rocky Mountains into the city's treatment plant. No problem. We had been privileged and in some ways probably took for granted that these watersheds were providing us consistently clean clear water all the time. That's the city's water quality manager, Jill Oropesa. We're along the river just outside of town, downstream of where the High Park Fire burned more than 87,000 acres in 2012. For the first year after the fire, every time it rained, the river turned black. Mudslides of ash and scorched soil spilled into it. And before workers could turn off the river's intake, that muddy water clogged pipes leading to the treatment plant. We ended up with a lot of sediment in our pipelines that was difficult to remove. And even if they got the water through the full treatment process, it still tasted and smelled smoky. That led the city to install an early warning system. From where we're standing, you can see a long metal pipe stuck in the middle of the river. It's measuring how turbid or cloudy the water is. If the sensor detects too much sediment, utility workers can turn off the plant's intake and switch to water from a large reservoir to avoid clogged pipes. It became really important for us to have a heads up for when those changes in water quality were occurring. The effects of the High Park's burn scar on water quality only lasted a few years, but this early warning system is about to get a lot more use because this summer's Cameron Peak fire has burned another broad sweep of the river's watershed. I think that's one of the most important points about this whole fire is that it's in a sort of high value location for water supply in the Front Range. Chuck Rhodes is with the Forest Service's Rocky Mountain Research Station and studies how big disturbances in forests can affect water quality. 
between the High Park and Cameron Peak fires, nearly the entire southern half of the Poudre River watershed has burned in the last decade. And Rhodes says that will have big impacts on people downstream. Whether they're agriculturalists, whether they're residential folks, whether they're people that are floating the river or the aquatic, you know, the aquatic organisms that are using the river, they're all really linked to what's happening. But because the High Park fire happened so recently, Fort Collins might be more prepared than other places in the West to deal with this new fire. Jen Covexis runs the nonprofit Coalition for the Poudre River Watershed. She says the people who formed her group after High Park are already talking about recovery from the current one while it's still burning. It doesn't make the situation less stressful, or maybe it makes it moderately less stressful, but the reality of fire footprint this big is just, it's, it's a lot to take in. Covexis says the 2020 fire season has renewed a region-wide discussion about forest health. And if cities want to avoid long-term water quality problems, she says they need to be thinking about how to first reduce the risk of megafires. In the West, it's not a question of if it will happen to your community. It's a question of when one of these large events will happen to your communities. Back on the banks of the Poudre River, the city of Fort Collins' Jill Oropesa says decisions made after the last big fire, like building new infrastructure to remove sediment, will help them respond this time around. And they already have relationships with researchers, federal agencies, and others to ease the burden. We live in fire-prone watersheds, and that it's our part of our responsibility to adapt to those, that reality. A reality that includes drier forests, hotter summers, and extended fire seasons across the West. I'm Luke Runyon in Fort Collins, Colorado. This story is part of a series produced by KUNC, KJZZ, KHOL, Aspen Public Radio, and Wyoming Public Radio. Support comes from the Walton Family Foundation. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. Eight Songs for a Mad King was written about King George III, but when Bodhi Tree Concerts performed it at San Diego International Fringe Festival in 2017, their king looked a lot like Donald Trump. With the presidential election around the corner, Bodhi Tree decided to hold a virtual encore production tomorrow night. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Bodhi Tree co-founders Diana and Walter DeMell about the show. In 2017, Bodhi Tree Concerts staged eight songs for a Mad King at San Diego International Fringe. 
But before we talk about your new production, talk a little bit about the origins of Eight Songs for a Mad King and what led you to produce it for Fringe back in 2017. Eight Songs has been one of those uh, pieces that had been on my music shelf for about the last 25 years, waiting for the perfect synergistic opportunity to unveil itself. And the Fringe Festival was, in fact, that opportunity. And um, pivoting the, the Mad King from George III to our, at that point, recently elected own Mad King seemed like an appropriate fit. And uh, the fit is all the more appropriate today. So that was the origin, more or less. Well, we also found a great music director in Brendan Nguyen, who was up to the challenge. He brought amazing local artists with him and he put together an incredible chamber orchestra. So we had this incredible group of local artists that were ready to go and we had the motivation and we had the, the vehicle through the San Diego International Fringe Festival too. So it was awesome. And what is this original piece? Because you mentioned it was about King George. So what what is, is this an opera piece or what exactly, how do you describe what this piece is? Because it's, it's quite unique. It calls for six instrumentalists with a quite a, a wider range of percussion instruments, giving it a, a wide palette of sounds. The keyboardist does both piano, harpsichord. Sir Peter Maxwell Davies took actual writings uh, that King George had cobbled put together this sort of psychodrama, if you will, of the rantings of a, of a mad monarch. And um, in some of the little poems and writings that King George wrote, he was believed to have been talk. the birds were talking to him, the animals were talking to him. And so the piece sort of pivots around a lot of tweeting-like uh, sounds that communicate to him. <laughs> and so that that's really, even if you set this in period England, um, that manifestation of the of the birds communicating to the Mad King was absolutely there from the orig origins. And, and basically it was a vehicle for, at the time, what was very provocative extended vocal techniques. So the singer is using his voice in a lot of creative extended ways that would not be normally found on the operatic stage. <laughs> I think the orchestra too, they have a lot of cool extended technique. We're gonna try and highlight that in the video production of it, which you couldn't really see in the live production. So we get to highlight that those techniques as well as Walter's um, extended techniques. So I'm very interested to see how this translates because the production you did at Fringe was wildly kind of expansive in that you were singing and dancing across a huge, boardroom table and people were live tweeting and it was very interactive. So we are now in lockdown and we can't have live performances. So how have you translated it and what is this production going to look like? Well, um, we started with the orchestra and almost all the orchestra members are the original, are from the original cast and they recorded their parts in their homes. And our conductor, Brendan Dwin, Nguyen put the parts together and laid, laid out a master. So it's kind of a new definition of a conductor. And then um, Walter went in and recorded his part separately with Brendan so that he was recorded. And then the next part was filming. And so Walter basically sang to the orchestra track and himself while filming. 
and um, we all wore masks all of the time, except for when Walter was actively performing, he took his mask off. It was not easy, but we don't have the live tweeting, but we do have tweeting featured, you know, which we can put in in editing that we have. We have lots of screens up in our behind the Mad King. So we have a lot of media going on at all times. We hope that when we present it on Instagram and Facebook on digitally, that people will comment when it's presented. So we're gonna send out instructions and encourage people to tweet what they feel. Because honestly, those tweets that were in the live production, they became a character in the show. The audiences were brilliant and we'll definitely miss that. So I'm hoping people will comment if I can add the three other videoed concert presentations that we've done this season so far, the live interaction or the commentary that goes on the side of the screen has been a fun addition to watching the, the videoed performance because you do feel connected to a virtual audience that are commenting in real time and uh, though it won't be quite as uh, biting or potentially as uh, acerbically witty as what was happening in our 2017 Fringe Festival, I think it'll be an addition as well. And Walter, talk a little bit about the challenges of performing this role. Oh, yeah. I think always starting with the material that's given to you by the composer, uh, and in this case, Sir Peter Maxwell gave you these rather quirky poems or writings by King George, at times nonsensical or unrelated to each other. But then if you were to look at a sheet of the sheet music, you would see more suggestive lines and arrows than you would actually notes to sing. (laughs) He has a lot of instructions that say, get whiny or sing like an alto, you know. So there's a lot of uh, vocal suggestions that are not defined. And it really, you could watch 15 performances of this by different artists and they would all be completely different experiences. So I think finding, making choices and making choices that you can sustain without hurting yourself, because a lot of times it is almost screaming and vomiting this, the madness coming out of this guy, you know, playing with what you can do healthily and, and repeatedly is part of the challenge to whatever performer takes on this role. Why did you feel it was important to get a production of this off before the election? Do you feel that the timing of this is important to you? Well, yes, we do. We're thinking of it as a please get out and vote vehicle. It's art imitating life and we're putting it out there and we just want people to vote. Vote, vote, vote. <laughs> and how, how people can access this? We're gonna present eight songs for a Mad King one time only on Friday, October 30th, starting at 6 p.m. And we'll show it through Instagram and Facebook. And if you want instructions on how to join us, um, they can reach us at BodhiTreeConcerts at gmail.com. Join us. We have to get the word out because it's one time only. All right. I want to thank you both very much for talking about eight songs for a Mad King. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much, Beth. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Diana and Walter DeMell of Bodhi Tree Concerts. Eight songs for a Mad King will be available on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram tomorrow night at 6.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.